Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. Anytime you're in Huntsville, we hope you'll come be part of our worship. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. We hope you'll enjoy this lesson brought to us by Glenn Colley. The scripture reading this morning will come from Genesis chapter 45, verses 4 through 8. Genesis 45, 4 through 8. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a prosperity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he had made me a father to Pharaoh, and a lord to all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Would you open God's book, please, to Genesis chapter 15? In a couple of minutes, I'm going to launch into our study with that passage. Genesis chapter 15, we'll start about verse 7. So glad to see you here this morning. I want to talk about the providence of God today. As a matter of fact, I want to talk about it in both the morning and the evening service. I love to think about the verses that directly connect God to me in my life. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and upbraids not. You had fathers of your flesh which corrected you, and you gave them wisdom a reverence rather, shall you not much, not much rather be in subjection to your father of spirits and live? They chastened us after their pleasure, according to the way they thought was best, but he for our profit, that is to say then that Jesus or that God disciplines us. What is that but involvement that God has in our lives? What is that but God's providence in our lives? And when we pray, I want you to pray like this, our Father which art in heaven, and give us this day Give us today our daily bread. What is that but God's involvement in my life? The word providence is kind of interesting. What we say is that it means God's providence. And I've used that term before. It's kind of a good walking street kind of definition for it. It means that he provides for us. But when you get to the etymology and look into the history of the words, you find something very interesting. It's a Latin word, and, it, and it's broken down into pro and valentia, And pro means ahead, and Valencia means to see. It's not just that he provides for us. I mean, that's the word that we use. It involves that, but it involves a future knowledge, a foreknowledge. And when you talk about God, when you apply this to God, it gets huge. Because because he has foreknowledge without limit. Because he has infinite resources. Because he is without restraint in his power and ability, and he, he has providence. Now, what we typically do, and I think it's right, is the divide, we distinguish providence from the miraculous. And then the miraculous, God puts his finger, if you please, onto this earth, and he stops everything, and he inserts his will and comes back out, and it's, it's a supernatural occurrence. I believe providence is greater than miraculous, and it's what you and I have. In providence, God inserts 
a thousand different things through natural means to bring about his will. I want you to hold on to that. That's, that's important. J.W. McGarvey was a great gospel preacher and a great writer. Many of us through the years have read the fourfold gospel and benefited by it. And McGarvey and Pendleton wrote that uh, before 1900s. I have a commentary on my shelf from above uh, Matthew and Mark, and it's from McGarvey. Wrote it in 1875. Well, that's, I don't know, a year or so, I've come across two or three different articles that reference the providence of God. And, and they reference what they consider to be the greatest sermon ever preached on providence, which I thought was very interesting. I mean, it was preached 130 years ago by McGarvey. And it made me go search for it. What is it that McGarvey says different that we that we haven't seen? What did he see? And is this really unique? And why do people keep bragging about this sermon on providence? And so I found it. And I'm going to preach it this morning. I'm not going to preach it word for word, and I I doubt that I will do it the justice that McGarvey did when he preached it. But what I really want to do is to take the approach he took and to show you why people have remembered this sermon for so very long. And we're going to go to Joseph, but we start in Genesis chapter 15 with Abraham. So go there with me and let's start in verse 7. Today we're going to be preaching about Joseph and, and in particular about providence. Now that part that you connect the two, that's not surprising to you. You know that, that Joseph, as just Mark just read to us, has so much to say about God's providence And when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And you're not the ones who put me in Egypt. You're not the ones. God did this. God, he attributes all of this to God. Get the history to understand it. You have to go to the launching pad. Now, I really want you to open your hearts as we go to Genesis 15. You probably, if you have a hard copy of the Bible, you probably want to be underlining some things. And I'll show you what why that's going to be important. This is God promising Abraham something that's going to happen in the faraway future. As a matter of fact, what I'm about to read is not going to be begun for 200 more years. Biblical terms, that seems very short. In real time, I mean, how how long is 200 years in American history? Are you kidding? I've been to Jamestown, right? I mean, I, I know where we started in this great country of ours a couple of hundred years ago. It's been a long time. What they did was very primitive to what we do. It would be a couple of hundred years before this prophecy was fulfilled. Let's start now in chapter 15 of Genesis and verse 7. Are we all there? Then he said to him, God, to Abraham, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land to inherit it. It's Canaan. Abraham is in Canaan. You're going to inherit this land. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in two. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he, God, said to Abram, ready? No, certainly, 
I've underlined the word certainly in my Bible. That your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And will serve them. And they, in that faraway land, will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, you you already know what's about to happen, you know, in the subsequent history. You know that that the people of Israel are going to be in Egypt, and that's the foreign land, and Jacob couldn't have even imagined this, but that's what happened, and that they're going to be there for 400 years. They'll be slaves, and then they're going to leave there, and they'll spoil the Egyptians, and when they leave, they'll have great wealth, and they'll be a large nation, and God's going to take Israel into the land of Canaan. You know what this means. I want you to appreciate the specificity with which God says it, and he says, I want you to know this certainly. Now keep reading. Drop down to verse 16. No, 15. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here, that is to Canaan, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That is to say, the people of Canaan are wicked. And when they finish that wickedness, and I've had enough, then I'm going to jerk a knot, and I'm going to take this Canaan away from them, and I'm going to give it to my people, your descendants. Now verse 18. On the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt... To the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. He says, I'm going to give it in the fourth generation. You're going to die and you won't know anything about this except what I'm telling you now. It's not going to happen in your time. Fourth generation is when it's going to happen. And I'm going to give this land that you're on right now, the land of Canaan. I'm giving it to your descendants in that fourth generation. And then he specifies where is it going to be from from the Nile River down to the Euphrates River, I'm talking about the land where these people now dwell. Okay, this is not going to start for a couple of hundred years. And then it's going to be 400 years before it will actually take place, before Abraham's descendants are going to have the land. What I want to focus on is this. Know for a certainty this is going to happen. And verse 18 just bowls me over. I have given you this land. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There are people dwelling on the land of Canaan right now. And and Abraham's descendants are all very, very few, right? Well, how is this even possible? And God's going to take credit for it. He says, I'm going to do this. I've done this. I'm going to make this happen. How could God say that? And, And then the bigger question is, how did he go about it? How did he go about making this prophecy occur? That's what this sermon is about. Now, it didn't happen during Abraham's time. It it didn't, I mean, Abraham's going to, he's in Canaan there, but it doesn't happen. He dies just like the prophecy said. Isaac is his son, lives 180 years, and and he dies. He doesn't know anything about this this land, a foreign land. Your descendants are going to go to this foreign land, and they're going to be slaves there for 400 years. Isaac doesn't know about it. Jacob, his son, gets to be an old man, and he doesn't know about this. He's still in Canaan until he gets to be an old man. 
And the second time that, that, that the sons come back from Egypt, second time back, they come with a long train of wagons full of provisions. There's famine in Canaan. And the sons come back to their daddy Jacob and they say, Daddy, Joseph is alive. He's alive. And not only that, he's the governor of Egypt. He's second in command to Pharaoh himself. He's powerful and he's rich and he, he's there and he wants us to come. He wants all of us to come and live in the land of Goshen and we're going to have plenty of provisions. And the proof of it is these, this string of wagons right here that are full of provisions. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the first time Jacob ever entertained the idea of migrating to Egypt. But he's going now. You listen to me. And the providence of God begins. And the prophecy of Genesis 15 now begins. What, what McGarvey did in his sermon that was unique, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you before I do it, is that he told the story of Joseph backwards. And when you talk about providence in your life, and you've thought about providence, haven't you? You think about it, and God's involvement in your life right now. This is particularly important when you're going through the difficult times. It's very difficult to, 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 to declare that right now what's happening in my life is God's providential hand. He's doing this in my life. Providence is best seen in history, right? And we go through these things. We live through our lives, and then we come to our, our, this place, and we look back, and we say, oh, yeah, you know what? I didn't know what that was going to do but it brought me to this, and that brought me to this, and then that brought me to this, and all of it culminated to where I am, where I am right now. And God, God's hand has been with me through my life. So, so here's, here's Joseph bringing his family to Egypt. Joseph has all this power. How did Joseph get to have all this power? Well, it just so happens that he interpreted the dreams of Pharaoh. And, and uh, you remember there were seven skinny cows coming up out of the Nile and seven fat cows. The skinny ones ate the fat ones but didn't get any larger. And Joseph interpreted that dream, and that's how he got to be. Joseph said, you ought to, you ought to find somebody to be over this because famine's coming, and you need somebody to tax the people during the plenty years. We're going to have seven plentiful years. Tax them 20%, bring in all that grain so that when the famine comes, Seven years of famine that you'll have plenty of food to feed them. Other people too, you'll have plenty, but you've got to put somebody over this right now. And Pharaoh put him over it. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's, that's very interesting. But, but how, how did Joseph, a Hebrew slave, get to be in front of Pharaoh to begin with? I don't understand how that's even possible. Well, well you see, it, it just so happens that that Pharaoh had a, had a butler, and the butler had been in prison, and when the butler was in prison, Joseph interpreted his dream, as well as another officer who was a baker. Joseph interpreted his dream. And the butler was told at that time, Joseph said to him, now, don't you forget, when you get back to the king, because that's what your dream means, you're going to go back to the king, and when you get back, be sure and tell him, I'm here unjustly, because I, I'm, I shouldn't be here. This is all wrong. And the butler f- f- forgot. 
He just got so tied up in his own life and everything going on that he just forgot to tell the king this. Now, hold on a second, because had he not forgotten, the story would read different. I mean, I suppose he might have gone back to the king, and now he's, he resumes his position. He's a very trusted position with King Pharaoh, and, and suppose that Pharaoh had released Joseph then. Where would Joseph have gone? I, I, I doubt that he would have stayed in Egypt. And this thing would have all just gone away. I mean, it wouldn't have happened. But that's not what happened. What happened is that the, the, the butler forgot for two years until the king has a dream that's troubling him. And then he remembered, I know who can interpret the dream. Incidentally, the, the magicians couldn't do it. Pharaoh calls his wise magicians, tell, us a, tell me what the interpretation of this dream is. And they can't do it. Suppose they speculated. Suppose they acted like they could. And that's what they've been doing for a long time anyway. They don't have any real powers. But suppose they had, oh, king, you know, in 20 years, this is what's going to happen. And they fabricate something. The king would have never called Joseph. He wouldn't have seen the need. But what they said was, we don't know. We, we don't know. We don't know your dream. We can't, we can't interpret that dream. That is above our pay grade. We, we hear what you're saying about the cows and the stalks. And we, don't, we can't do it. So what happens is the butler remembers Joseph at that time. He brings Joseph in. And so that's how this happened. Yeah, well, hold on a minute. I, mean, I, I get that. But how did Joseph happen to have access to these two officers, the butler and the baker, in a prison? Why would, why would a Hebrew slave have access to these men in the prison? And the answer is, Pharaoh would have had a bad day and he put both these guys in prison one day. But Joseph had lived a great life. Joseph was an honorable, honest, and good man. And the keeper of the prison saw that in Joseph and had put him over all the prisoners, which gave him access to these two prisoners. And one day, Joseph said, you guys look kind of down. What's the matter? And they thought enough of Joseph to tell Joseph, Hebrew slave, about their dreams. And Joseph says, God will give the interpretation. And he told them. And you know what? He was dead right. He was, he was right about that. You say, yeah, but, okay, well, wait a minute. So how did Joseph, who is a Hebrew, get all the way from the land of Canaan where his dad lived, how to get all the way to Egypt into this prison? And the answer is that, well, Potiphar's wife lied about him. And that's how Joseph got here. He was falsely accused. What? Yeah, yeah, she, she, uh, uh, Joseph had been there about 10 years or so, and uh, Joseph, Joseph, uh, had access to everything in Potiphar's house because Joseph had lived a great life before him, an honorable life, and Potiphar appreciated him. So he put Joseph over everything, and that gave access to Potiphar's wife so that she would be alone in this house with this slave boy named Joseph. And she made a, a sinful proposal to him, and he declined that proposal. She, she falsely accused him, and that landed him in jail. Okay, well, hold on a minute. And, and I will just tell you that McGarvey at this point of the story said, any Kentuckian would have killed that man for accosting his wife instanter. It's a word I don't use, instanter. But I looked it up, and what it means is what you think. It means too sweet. It means right now. If, if, you're, if you have a slave who 
is accused of accosting your wife, you would just kill him. How come Pharaoh didn't do that? I mean, uh, Potiphar didn't do that. And the answer is that Potiphar knew Joseph, and Potiphar knew his wife, and apparently he knew that Joseph was innocent, but he couldn't, he couldn't just overlook this. I'm making that assumption. So that's what puts, puts Joseph in that prison. Potiphar put him in prison so that he would, and he would be together with, with the butler and the baker, and the butler then would put him together with Pharaoh, and then Pharaoh would ask him about the dream. And that gets him to be the powerful man in Egypt. Following me? Well, yeah, but hold on a minute. How, how do you suppose that a Hebrew slave would, would get to be in Egypt to begin with? Why was he in Egypt? His father had wealth and provision, and why would he go to Egypt? Well, because. You see, the, um, the brothers of Joseph hate him. And, and one day, Jacob sends Joseph to check on his brothers in Dothan, who are with the herd and the flocks, and, and so Joseph goes about 60 miles. When he gets there, he's really anticipating that the brothers are going to receive him with gladness and embrace him, and, and he just can't wait, I suppose. He has no idea, and when he gets there, what he sees is scowls on all of their faces. One of them, seeing him coming, says, behold, the dreamer, and they propose to kill him. Reuben, the oldest, said, no, let's don't kill him. Why don't we put him in the cistern here, this pit? Put him in the cistern. And uh, we'll, we, you know, so they, with rough hands, they rip the coat off of him. They lower him down into that pit. And the idea that Reuben has is that he's going to come back in a few minutes and release him. But Reuben apparently has to leave. And that's always been a frustration to me. But it's important to the story. Had Reuben not left, what I'm about to tell you wouldn't have occurred. Reuben left, and the brothers saw the Midianites or Ishmaelites come who were slave buyers. They negotiate to buy Joseph, and they sell him. Now, the timing has to be right for this to work because had, had the Ishmaelites come 15 minutes early, and I'm just speculating about that, I don't know, but had the Ishmaelites come a few minutes late or, or earlier, if they had come when Reuben was there, Joseph wouldn't have been sold into Egypt. Joseph wouldn't have been in Egypt. Joseph wouldn't have been in Potiphar's house, and Joseph wouldn't have been able to save his people in Egypt, the prophecy wouldn't have been able to be fulfilled, except here's what happened. Reuben wasn't there to save him. And as a result, the brothers sold Joseph into slavery. And he was taken to Egypt, where all of this happened. You say, but, but how did it get to this fevered pitch? Where they wanted to kill him, where they would sell him into slavery. How did that even, how is that even possible? And the answer is, are you ready for this? Two things a coat of many colors, and Joseph's dreams. It's Joseph's dreams. And he dreamed these silly dreams. He thought they were silly. He didn't take it seriously at the time. But the dreams, of course, as you recall, indicated that one day his brothers would bow down to him. And they hated him. Because of that, it was as if God acted in this small, who, who in this room, who in this room would say, oh, well, you see, he had these dreams, and I'll tell you what's going to happen. One day, he's going to bring his dad's family, all of his descendants to Egypt, because he'll be powerful, and it starts right here. You wouldn't say that. You wouldn't have seen that, nor would I. 
But I'm telling you this. And these are, let's, let's make three takeaways, and then I'm going to be finished. But I'm telling you this. This is a chain. And it's best seen in the reverse. It's best seen the way that I've told it. Because, because you, you have moment after moment in this history, and unless it happened this way, you can't have the end result. And it all comes together. This, but now... Isn't that true in our lives? And is there, is, you, take about, you think about the scriptures that have reference to God's involvement in my life right now. There is no reason not to believe that these same kind of principles hold true. That God is involved in our lives. Now, some of the links in the chain are good and some of them are bad. This happened 3,000 years ago, but I'm telling you, it's so terribly practical. Some of it was good and some of it was bad. And the point is that even in the bad things, even in, even in Potiphar's wife and doing this awful thing, God didn't endorse that. God didn't make her do that. The point is he knew what she would do and he put Joseph there at that time and that's what she did. But God used that for, for his ultimate purpose. How do we explain the bitter enigmas of life? How do we explain the difficulty, the hard things? And how do we explain those two years that, that old Joseph was in that prison? You suppose he was praying to God? Oh, yeah, yes, yes, no doubt about that. And during those difficult times, Joseph was a good man. Can you hear me, everybody? This is important. He never gave up his faith. He never gave up his dedication to God. He never did. In those hard times, despite the fact that he couldn't see how God was working in his life, and it looked so very much like God had abandoned him, but you know God had not abandoned him. Of course not. God was working his purpose. But it was essential that through those difficult times, when he was in, in Potiphar's house, he was a good man. He was still a good man. When he was in prison for those two years, he was still a good man. Is that a true statement? Without that, had he become a reprobate, and you could understand why he might do that. I wouldn't justify it. But, you know, you could say, he's totally abandoned. Why wouldn't he just throw up his hands and say, God doesn't care a snap about me? He could have. But he'd have been wrong. Through the bad times, he retained his faith. And that facilitated the fulfillment of the prophecy, too. Because Joseph was a good man. There are only two occasions, you might say three, of miraculous intervention. And that's with the dreams, where God had this stream of events, this chain of events of just natural things, things that, that happen. And I, I would say that the two are, are the dreams that are interpreted by Joseph, the dreams of the butler and the baker, uh, baker and God reaches down and touches his finger there. And then and you have it, of course, with Pharaoh, and God reaches down and touches his finger there. But other than that, all of these are explained naturally. God working? Yes. God working in somebody's life, yes. To bring about his purpose, yes. But through natural means, what do you call that? We have put this word to it. The word's not in the Bible relative to God, but the, but the teaching, the reality is all through it. It's saturated with it. And certainly the story of Joseph and, and the, the word we use to describe it is, is providence. It means foreknowledge, using it applicably to God, it means that he has some divine power and foreknowledge and purpose for our lives. He's not going to make us do right, never will do that. But in the lives of his people, he has purpose 
And even in the hard times, and that's when this becomes so very practical. I don't deny him. I don't doubt him. Come what may, I want to be like Joseph. I want to walk with my God. I want to be faithful. And whatever that purpose is, I want to fulfill it. Tonight, when you come back, what I want to do is this. I want to continue this, but I'm going to take it from a different vantage point. We're going to talk about the part of the account of Joseph when his brothers come to Egypt. There's a famine in Canaan, come to Egypt because they know Egyptians have food. And the business about putting their money back in the sacks, putting the, the, the goblet of Joseph in Benjamin's sack, and that give and take, and put them in jail and bring them out of jail, and all of that that happened, we're going to make sense of that tonight. And talk about the reason why it's there and what we learn from that. And so I hope you come back tonight and let's take up that part. I won't preach as long tonight as I am this morning, but we'll take that up and we'll draw some practical lessons from it. And I hope you, hope you can make it back. There may be somebody here today who isn't a Christian. If you're not, the longer you resist, the longer you are pushing away from the purpose that God has for your life. I can tell you for sure His purpose includes you becoming a Christian. I do not know more than that, but I know that. Don't fight him. You won't win that. You need to be a Christian. You need to obey the gospel, to repent of your sins and confess the name of Jesus and be immersed in water, because that's what he said. And he attached it to salvation. Would you like to obey the gospel? We'll be so glad to help you. And if you already have done that, but you, wanna, you need the prayers of Christians, perhaps some sin in your life, and you've repented of it, but you want everybody to know that you've done that, and we'll be so happy to pray with you, perhaps for some other reason. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word, brought to us by Glenn Colley. If you have comments or questions, Glenn can be reached by email at colley at westhuntsville.org.